Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk more today about the mass shooting that happened at Oxford High School this week. Oakland County Executive Dave Coulter will join to discuss his reaction and his sense of what changes we might need to be considering. And we'll chat with a student founder of a gun control advocacy group about the way that mass shootings like these have shaped young people's reality in America. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So we know a little more about what happened in Oxford, Michigan, earlier this week at the high school where a 15-year-old is charged now with uh, killing four of his school classmates and injuring several more people this week. Um, We want to begin the show today just talking about what happened, what our reactions are to what happened, and maybe begin to think about the things that we might do differently, differently in schools, differently in our culture with regard to guns, who has access to them, how we hold people responsible for the things that happen with their guns, and of course, with violence. The idea that so many people resort to unimaginable violence to solve what problems they have. One of the things we learned yesterday is that Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald is going to charge 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly with one count of terrorism causing death, four counts of first-degree murder, seven counts of assault with intent to murder, and 12 counts of possessing a firearm in commission of a felony. McDonald says her office is considering even more charges in the near future, including possible charges against both of Crumbly's parents. Now, remember that the gun he used in the high school this week was purchased by his father, apparently, on Black Friday. It's something he should never have gotten his hands on. And the idea of holding his parents responsible for this is something that I think all of us ought to think really hard about. Why don't we do that more often? Meanwhile, the community of Oxford and all of southeast Michigan continues to shoulder the weight of more senseless violence and the crushing grief that uh, accompanies it. There is just a lot of emotion out there right now about all of this. And so we're making space here on the show today for all of us to talk through what we're feeling and what we're thinking. How are you doing with this news, what are you feeling? Is it sadness, grief, anger, fear? It's probably some mix of all of those things if you're anything like me. And what do you want to see happen to address this seemingly endless cycle of gun violence in our schools and elsewhere in America? It's a really old question at this point. We've really been dealing with this level of violence for almost a generation in our country. There are young adults who don't remember a time when they weren't fearful to go to school on certain days. There are lots of people who think about going to the mall or going to work or the grocery store really differently than they used to. 
because of the fear of, of gun violence, random gun violence. So call and tell us what you're thinking about, how you're feeling about all this, how you're processing it. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation that way. To start us off today uh, with our conversation is someone who's been in the middle of this tragedy for the past two days, almost immediately after the news reports started to come out about the shooting that was happening at Oxford High School. You saw Oakland County Executive Dave Coulter there talking to families, talking to authorities about what is going on in his jurisdiction here in Southeast Michigan. Dave Coulter, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, uh, Stephen, for having me. And, and, and also, thank you for creating this space for, as you said, people to be able to express what they're feeling. Because, boy, there's sure a wide range of, of feelings that, that, that change by the minute and multiple feelings at the same time. And it's, it's a really difficult time for all of us. And I appreciate you creating that space for this discussion. Yeah, of course. So, as I said in the open, you were one of the faces that I saw first on television, on the scene there in Oxford, talking with parents, talking with authorities about what had happened that day. Give me a sense now of how you're feeling in the wake of this tragedy. Yeah, um, and and I was. Um, even though this was obviously a criminal incident and the sheriff's department takes the lead on that, our role in that is to stand up, and we did very quickly, an emergency operations center. It's to gather people from all different, not only departments of the county, but around the county, schools and the like, to say, what do we know uh, to be true, and what do we need to do to address this? And I will tell you, I, you know, I, I was in that EOC, as we call it, uh, all day and most of the evening, and it was like being in the eye of a hurricane. You know, uh, there's all this mass confusion and questions and, and horror going on around in, in Oxford and, and through our communities. But in that space, I witnessed professional first responders uh, doing their job. They do train for this. They hope and pray that they never have to activate their plans, but they do plan for it. And I got to witness some really heroic people behind the scenes that in a very calm and professional manner, addressed an unbelievable tragedy. Uh, and that's kind of how I spent that first day, uh, being both impressed by them. And then just, you know, the magnitude and the horror of something like this sort of, it, it shocks you and then it creeps up on you in lots of different ways. And I've had a mix of emotions, obviously, over the last two, two and a half days. But um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm more grateful than ever for the, the, the first responders. And that in, it includes, obviously, the sheriff's deputies and all of those folks, but also the, the countless people behind the scenes that uh, make sure that we understand what's happening and are responding in an appropriate way. Yeah. So before we went on air today, there was news that public schools in Bloomfield Hills, Holly, Rochester, Troy, Warren, Clarkston, Lake Orion, Wald Lake, and Clawson were all closing today because of threats of school violence that are circulating on social media. Since we've gone on air, that list has grown, and now there are more than a dozen local school districts that are closing. What's happening here, and and how concerned do you think people in your county and in other places in Metro Detroit ought to be about this? Um. Well, first of all, I think we all need to be concerned and we need to be really aware of what we're seeing on social media. We have to take every uh, everything that we see seriously and, and, and don't uh, assume that it's it's not meant to be real. But having said that, what we know is whenever events like this happen, for whatever psychological reason, and I am not sure I can address that, but we know that after these kinds of events, copycat type behavior happens. Uh, there's an increased amount of threats that look like that. And, and it's, it's 
become an oddly normal part of these events. So our law enforcement, and not just at the county, but local law enforcement, uh, police departments and the like, have been on, uh, on, on high alert uh, for additional threats, just because this is a, unfortunately a typical thing that happens. And so those, those kinds of warnings escalated to a point yesterday evening and again this morning to a point where they said, we're just going to err on the side of caution. It doesn't mean that these are credible threats, but they have to assume that everything is credible <clears throat> and take everything seriously. So I applaud them for, you know, taking the rather dramatic step of pausing uh, until we can sift through what's real and what's not, um, because there's a lot of chatter out there. And, and it just, you know, it makes a terrible situation mm-hmm. that much worse. Yeah. So I'm talking with Dave Coulter. He's Oakland County executive. And we're talking about what happened just a few days ago at Oxford High School. Uh, a 15-year-old came into the school with a gun and shot and wounded many people and killed four students. Uh, we're talking about how we are all reacting to this news, this kind of shock and awe of a tragic event right here in the community uh, that we all share here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, What are you thinking about what was happening at Oxford High School a few days ago? What are you thinking about what's happening now in reaction to it? What do you think about the charges that the Oakland County prosecutor has filed against uh, against 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly. What do you think about the, the violence that our children who are in school, some of them who are now young adults, have witnessed and experienced while they're growing up, this random shooting violence that uh, visits on us from time to time. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, uh, or go to go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, we've already got a number of calls queued up to talk about this, and of course, a lot of social media comments. But before we get to listeners, uh, Dave, I want you to talk just a little about what you think the community in Oxford needs right now, and what the county is doing and can do to get them what they need. I, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, even though this seems very close to home and it is and seems very uh, proximate to our lives, it's, it's difficult to quite fathom what people who have experienced this directly are going through, that this is, this is a absolute... Uh, disruption to every part of their lives uh, in, in that community. Uh, it's a, one of the communities that uh, that you serve as Oakland County Executive. Give us a sense of what you're hearing from the people there about their needs and how we get them met. Yeah, um, that's a great question, uh, Stephen. And one of the things I realized right away is that uh, while this is a incredibly devastating experience for those four young people, Tate, Madison, Hannah, and Justin, let's just say their names, and their families and their loved ones. Uh, it, it, tragedies like this affect all of us in some way. You know, they, they, really, they really tear at, our, at our, our sense of security. I mean, in a place like a school, that should be a place where we can feel safe and at peace, and that has been disrupted. And, and so, all of us are affected uh, in some sort of way, and that ha- we have to take a holistic approach to that uh, and be mindful of that. There's, there's things that the county can do in that regard, uh, you know, around mental health. You know, I certainly want to say to folks uh, that there is no shame in feeling some kind of way and wanting to reach out and get some sort of uh, therapeutic support to process what you're feeling because that is normal. So please don't feel shame in that. Um, but I'd say at this point, this, the, the community, and I want to define community a little bit too, because uh, Oxford schools are uh, schools of choice, uh, which means uh, folks from other communities go there. Can go there. So yeah. Oxford is a large school district for a small community. So that means there are people from the, the south end of Genesee County, 
Uh, a lot of students there from Clarkston, from the Pontiac, um, which may surprise some of your listeners, but there's a significant population of students from Pontiac. So it, it's not just about the Oxford community. I'm always mindful to say the Oxford uh, school community because, it, you know, so this affects you know, so many uh, communities directly and then the rest of us indirectly. And so, it, you know, it, it's, it's overwhelming. And, you know, certainly you've described it accurately. There's a sense right now of shock and, and trauma that people are processing. Uh, so that's why the mental health part of it is, is crucial. There are a number of vigils and community support uh, events that are being organized uh, almost hourly and this is, I think, just our natural response to want to be with each other, to hug each other and support each other. Uh, and that's where we're at now. I mean, that's literally, you know, the first stage of grief is, is literally uh, where we're at now. And, and, um, but going forward, I will tell you that that is going to recede. We're going to process this in our own minds, and we're going to start to think next about those questions that you've raised. Um, but right now... Uh, we haven't even buried these four young people, and and so they're. Uh, th- this is a community, and not just Oakland County, but you know Southeast Michigan, and frankly, I hope in America for all decent people um, that that are once again reacting to a situation that we've seen all too often. Yeah, yeah. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Let's start today with Cindy. In Gross Point, Cindy, welcome to the show. Thank you. For, mm-hmm. Thank you for having this show today. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Cindy. Um, yeah, I, I just um, wanted to talk about the the gun that was purchased. I believe the information is that it was purchased by the father, and it was in the home. And um, I have two young children: one in high school, one in middle school, and. Um, if there was, you know, something dangerous uh, in the home, it is first and foremost the responsibility of the parent to make that environment safe. And the children's brains are not fully developed to make all of the right choices. Mm-hmm. And I am not excusing this child for doing this, but the ownership of what is at their fingertips has got to start at home. The teachers are doing an amazing job, and the parents and, and the community, yes, everyone's doing what they can, but it's not enough. It is not enough to just, this kid was able to get to something he shouldn't have had access to. Yeah. Cindy, I, I really appreciate your your call, and uh, I mean, I can just hear the emotion in your voice, and I think a lot of people are feeling a lot of things about the news that 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 we're getting, you know, over time, and it, it changes almost hourly in, in terms of what we are still learning about what happened. But you're right that that this idea that uh, a weapon purchased by an adult wound up in the hands of a child and ended up being used to kill four other children is is really hard to swallow it's really hard to understand how that happens but but again to to think about what the response should be uh, Dave Coulter you're not the prosecutor in um, in Oakland County you're not a legislator in Lansing but you do represent that community and this idea of responsibility I think is one of the things that ultimately I think we're going to end up needing to talk about here. Uh, and you're right that right now we're in that stage where we need to respect the, the grief space for the families who are affected and the, and the community, the school community that was affected. But the question of responsibility is, is creeping up really quickly, I think. And, and it's, it's a difficult one to sort through. It is, and and I want to speak for the prosecutor. You're right; I am not the prosecutor, but she has indicated uh, that uh, part of her, uh, part of what she's looking at, and part of what the investigation has been about, is the purchase of the gun, where it was, what did the you know what did the parents know about that, 
Um, and that's been, you know, and that is something that she's looking at. She's made that very clear. She understands the responsibilities of the parents, and she's trying to make a judgment in terms of what their, you know, criminal culpability will be. I want to be clear, uh, you know, we're innocent until proven guilty. And right now those parents are, you know, are dealing with their own um, issues with a family member. But mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that the, the prosecutor finds culpability there, I know she's going to, and she said quickly, because speed is of the essence here. We need to get to the truth and, and know the facts, but we need to do it in, 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 a, in, a, in a way that's quick because uh, things have a way of spiraling in these situations and the rumors and the, and the anger starts to build. Uh, and so I think she's doing an amazing job, frankly, of, of, of sorting through uh, the information that she's received from the investigation and, and trying to make these charging decisions as quickly as possible. And uh, she, uh, I applaud the, the decisions that she made yesterday. I think it showed that she was very serious uh, about bringing the most uh, the, the strictest charges she could uh, and I, I applaud her for that because the safety of our, of, our, of our county and our school and our country really depends on, on taking these things as seriously as possible. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Dave, uh, take, care, take care of yourself. Take care of uh, the people in Oxford and of Oakland County. I know you're working hard to try to help everybody out uh, processing all this and getting the space they need for for grief and and healing but i really appreciate you coming here uh to to talk with our listeners today thanks so much i appreciate you as well Stephen. thank you okay we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to continue talking about what happened in oxford this week at the high school we're going to talk with a young activist who's trying to end the epidemic of gun violence And uh, we're going to talk about her work as the founding president of the Wayne State University chapter of Students Demand Action. We'll also hear about the ways in which this kind of violence has really shaped the world for so many young people. It's something that people my age, now in my 50s, don't really understand or relate to in a really personal way. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones. David in Detroit, Tyler in Gross Point Farms. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to social media and put comments there and be part of the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us for talking this hour, much of this hour, about what happened in Oxford earlier this week at the high school. A 15-year-old who acquired a gun, went to school, and shot uh, several people, uh, killing four, four students, four of his classmates. Uh, a shocking event here in Southeast Michigan, and something that we are learning more and more about each day, we want to spend time today hearing from you about how you're feeling, how you're reacting to what happened in Oxford and what you're thinking about the future. What should it look like? What should we be doing to make these things less likely to happen? And how do we react in a way that makes the responsibility for this clear? In other words, one of the things that we need to be doing to uh, respond directly to the 15-year-old who did this to his parents, perhaps to the school community. What was school like for Ethan Crumbly? What was going on in his life that inspires this kind of reaction? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You could also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. 
or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. I also want to welcome another voice to this conversation, a really important voice. Megan Dombrowski is founding president of the Wayne State University chapter of Students Demand Action, which is a national organization of students that is calling for policies meant to curb gun violence in America. Megan Dombrowski, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. So I, I, I want to start with your reaction. What are you thinking and feeling in the wake of what happened in Oxford this week? Absolutely. So my heart really just goes out to all of those um, in the Oxford community and everyone across Michigan, um, because we're really feeling um, that pain all throughout um, our state. And so my first reaction when the the shooting occurred and when I heard news is um, immediately, you know, I was shocked. But in another sense, I wasn't so much shocked because we're seeing a gun violence epidemic in our country where 100 Americans are being shot and killed every day and more than 200 are wounded. Um, and so, you know, it was just a matter of time until a tragedy like this struck close to home. Mm. So a video uh, has gone viral of students huddled in a classroom during this shooting in Oxford. I've watched it a few times. I actually can't watch much more. I mean, it is it's pretty shocking itself. Some people, though, have noted how calm the students seem to be in that situation, despite being very frightened and with good reason. It, it, it seems like they've been really well prepared for something like this to happen. And I wonder if you can talk as, you know, a college student, somebody who was recently in K-12. Um, does that surprise you? And, and, Talk just a little about the frame of mind that children this age have about this kind of violence. I, I, I get the sense that for you, there is a normalcy associated with the threat of this kind of event that I might not have experienced when, when, when I was that age. I, I'm wondering if you've seen this video and uh, if you can talk about sort of what your experience was in, in, in schools. Absolutely. And yeah, normalcy has definitely become the watchword. Um, you know, we're sort of known as the school shooting generation. We've only grown up knowing this reality where students can go to school and not come home due to gun violence. Um, and that's something a lot of our lawmakers haven't experienced. And that's, you know, something I wonder is if they, have, you know, if they experienced this, would they be more quick to act? And, you know, as someone who was just in high school, active shooter drills were an act, it were something that regularly occurred. And um, ultimately, I think students have just become so numb to the reality we're facing today with gun violence, because um, even though um, we're talking in, you know, the context of a school shooting, we're not only, we're not only, um, thinking about we're not only accustomed to gun violence in our schools, but also outside of the school walls. Um, when you talk about firearm suicide and domestic violence and police shootings, um, this is something that's really uh, a really big aspect of a lot of our lives. Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Let's go to Lori in Oxford. Lori, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi, Hi. Hi Stephen. Mm -hmm. um, my sons are students at Oxford High School, mm -hmm. and they were in attendance the day that the um, shooting happened. And, um, you know, after everything happened, I, I talked to my kids, and um, my one son, um, Liam, I couldn't, I couldn't get a hold of him, and he wasn't in the Meyer parking lot when everybody else was there after the shooting. And uh, he said to me, Mom, um, my friends and I had made a plan a while ago that if there was ever a shooting at the school, that we wouldn't go to Myers because we were concerned that there might be a second shooter and we'd be sitting ducks. Mm. So when we climbed out the window, we went to the Senior Citizen Center. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but, but I, I, you know, and that's 
that's cunning and it is intelligent and it is at the same time absolutely frightening that that your child has to think that way right come up with an alternative plan for something like this to happen but but tell me a little more about what you felt when you couldn't find him when you didn't know where he was oh my word it it was unbelievable um so i have i have two boys um that attend the school and um my son, um, my first son, he uh, sent me a text and said, Mom, there's a shooter in the building. I just want you to know I love you and I'm okay. And, um, you know, I texted him back and I said, I said, thank you. But he put me in a group text with my husband and my son and um, uh, my other son. Sorry. I'm, um, and I couldn't, I, I said, Liam, where are you? Um, you're not answering. And mm-hmm. Uh, it took a long time to get a hold of him. So when he, after the event happened, he had crawled out the window. His phone had fallen out of his pocket, and I couldn't get a hold of him. And so then I was trying to reach friends and try to find out if anybody who, you know, both my sons knew had seen him. Um, it was it was pretty awful. Uh, and, and just, um, you know, finally, through friends and friends and friends, we, we, we found out that he was okay and he was at the senior citizen. Wow. Center, but that took probably almost an hour to find out where he was at, and it was just um, I, I can't even tell you um, what I went through. So, uh, so I do want to. I, I really appreciate your call and your sharing all of these experiences, Laurie. But before I let you go, I want to ask you if you can talk just a little about what it's like to parent in this era. We were talking with a young person, a college student who grew up at the time when all of us kind of got used to this. Um, uh, talk about the, the innocence that your children probably don't have anymore because of incidents like this and the, the, the need to, to constantly be shaping their decisions and their world around the possibility of this this happening. I mean, it, it, it's not something I assume that you grew up with. So this is this is new. It, it is new. And, um, you know, it is challenging navigating that. And, and honestly, you know, as much as uh, as I talk to my children, you know, about awareness, um, you, you can't take away um, all the things that, that make childhood wonderful, you know, wonder and, and, and a little bit of innocence that I feel like has been stolen from them right now. Um, you know, just uh, right now, we're just taking it one day at a time, and that's really all we can do. Um, it just, I guess it did surprise me um, to hear my son say that, you know, that they had actually talked enough to to have a plan and then have that come to fruition. You know, I think it's just really uh, mind-numbing just yeah. to think about that. Yeah. Lori, I really love that you called uh, to share all this today with uh, with our listeners, and I want to extend on behalf of all of us, you know, our deepest condolences about what happened in your community, and and hope that there is space for you guys to to grieve and heal and and move on from this. But but Lori, I really really appreciate your call. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Take care. Yeah. Okay, uh, I want to get back to our guest, Megan Dombrowski, here before we go back to more calls and social media uh, uh, comments. But before I do, I want, to, I want to get a couple comments in here that I want to have you react to. So Peter on Twitter says, I'm strongly opposed to trial as adults for children who commit serious crimes. When we do that, we're really sca- scapegoating children for the failings of adults. That isn't justice. That is retribution. Ethan Crumbly is a child. What he did does not change that fact. Uh, I just want to go to a caller who has a similar idea. David in Detroit. David, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning, Steve. Um, You're talking about emotions, and I want you to know that I'm numb over this because I've gone through this every time. We inadvertently bombed a hospital or a school or or a, a, a wedding party in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, I mean, this is this feeling that Oxford had multiplied around the world by 100-fold. Um, 
Also, remember, I mean, I don't know, I'm a young baby boomer, but I remember expecting nuclear war any minute uh, and doing the nuclear drills in school and doing stop, drop, and roll. And so I was traumatized in my own way in preparing for this. Mm -hmm. But I'm with Cindy and I'm with the the Twitter responder in that um, I think that it's uh, bogus to try a child as an adult. A child is a child. Unless he shows the emotional maturity, the decision-making ability of an adult, then he should. I believe he should be tried as a, a child. And I also want to point to uh, the hypocrisy in a lot of people who say that uh, the parents should have kept the weapons put away. And as far as we know, they did, right? But people wanting to charge the parents, a lot of the people who are wanting to charge the parents are the very same people who applauded Kyle Rittenhouse's mm-hmm. mother mm-hmm. for driving him to the riot with an with a assault rifle. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, David, I really appreciate your call and and your response to all of this as well. I think those are those are really important thoughts for all of us to be to be considering right now. Um Megan Dombrowski, I I, I do want to get your sense of uh, the, the, the possible changes. What are the things that you are advocating for reform? Uh, you can talk about how we ought to be charging people who do this. I suppose that's one question. But I think there are lots of other questions about how we respond to this that, that your group is working on. Absolutely. And what we're trying to do um, at Students in Action is really look um, at ways how we can prevent another um, tragedy like this from happening. Um, And so Oxford, what happened in Oxford really just underlined that there has never been a more important time for state lawmakers, our federal lawmakers, and even our school boards to take action on common sense policies and programs that are proven to make schools safer. Um, And one of these things that can be done at a local level at school districts Um, is um, implementing secure storage notification policies to make sure that parents know um, it's their um, responsibility to keep guns securely stored um, because we've really seen a spike in gun sales since the pandemic. And so um, from six years ago, there was 4.6 million children living in um, homes with unsecured firearms. um, And now that number has spiked to 5.4. So it's really incumbent upon um, our community and our school boards to make sure that parents are modeling responsible gun ownership if they are choosing to um, possess a firearm. Yeah. Okay, Megan Dombrowski, it was really great to have you here to talk about your work with Students Demand Action. Thanks so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thank you. Okay. We are going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to change the subject. Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case that could decide the fate of Roe v. Wade and, as a result, abortion rights across the country. I'm going to talk with Slate legal correspondent Dahlia Lithwick about what we heard and what it might mean for the future of reproductive rights here in America. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments yesterday in a case that could upend decades of legal precedent on a woman's right to choose here in America. Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health is going to determine the constitutionality of a Mississippi law that prohibits virtually all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. It could also very well determine the fate of Roe v. Wade, as well as Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the two landmark decisions that have guaranteed reproductive rights since 1973 and 1992. My next guest says yesterday's oral arguments in the case made it clear that this court, with its newly cemented conservative majority, will likely overturn those past decisions. 
Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Dahlia, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good to be back with you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So give us a quick overview of what we heard yesterday and why you think oral arguments have really confirmed the notion that this court is ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, I think going into arguments, it was clear that the court kind of had two paths. One, as you noted in your opening, you know, this is a 15-week ban in Mississippi. There are similar bans around the country. Uh, Those bans are always unerringly struck down, even by conservative courts, because the rule after Roe v. Wade and that was reaffirmed in Casey in 1992 is that pre bans, if it's an all-out ban, it is unconstitutional, and viability is currently set at about 24 weeks pregnancy. So a 15-week ban, that's not close. The way a lot of folks thought this would go is that the court wouldn't necessarily put the sort of legitimacy of Casey and Roe on the line. They would just move that viability line. Mm -hmm. They would say, oh, science has changed, and, you know, we've got better science, and we can detect fetal pain. You know, there's a lot of ways to frame it, but that that uh, 15-week marker is okay. And that's, I think, the position that Chief Justice John Roberts, and we've talked about this before, he's the incrementalist, he's the institutionalist. That's what he was trying to kind of muster some enthusiasm for at argument yesterday. Um, I, I don't think I'm alone when I say he had zero takers in that enterprise <laughs> to do a kind of narrow fiddling with the viability line. I think it was fairly clear that the other five conservatives on the court were really there to have a conversation about overturning Roe and Casey. Mm. So I, I want to talk a little more about those arguments and, and what that will mean. But I also want to stop for a second and talk about the fact that we heard from Justice Tom, Clarence Thomas uh, yesterday, which is not something that always happens in the court. It's something of a rarity. What what did he say and what was the exchange that he had uh, with the lawyers? Well, you know, Thomas has been famously silent mm-hmm. in all his, his years on the court, and that actually changed in COVID. When the court went to telephonic oral arguments, mm-hmm. Justice Thomas started to talk, and he talks at every argument. And in fact, the justices, as a matter of courtesy, allow him to ask the first question. <laughs> so one of the really interesting things about post-COVID Clarence Thomas is that he's incredibly deeply engaged uh, in oral arguments. Uh, The thing that he was, I think, most focused on uh, with the attorneys uh, who represented both the clinic in Mississippi uh, and the uh, federal government is that he really wanted to make a point of saying there's just no constitutional hook for the right to abortion. And Mm. he would sort of say, is this about privacy? Is this about autonomy? Like, where is this right located? Name the provision in the Constitution. Essentially, I think, calling into question all of what's called sort of substantive due process, all of the bucket of legal protections around privacy that go to LGBTQ rights and the right to use contraception. I think what he was trying to press on is that was just made up out of thin air. Show me where it is in the Constitution. And, and in many ways, that connects to lots of other arguments that we have about the sh- scope and the limits of individual rights and, and, and privacy in this country. I, I thought that when I read his comments, it was it was a, a sort of broadening of of the argument here to things that I, I think many other Americans might not even think are in question at the court. Yeah, I think for folks who are listening carefully the way you were, what was alarming is hearing the court simultaneously say, oh, Roe is bad precedent. There, you know, it's it's from 1973. It's not that old. Science has changed. Everybody hates it. It shouldn't be binding, but then assert that things like Griswold versus Connecticut, you know, the right to use contraception in your marriage, or, you know, as you say, Lawrence versus Texas, which first 
protected same-sex uh, uh, relationships, and then Obergefell, which pre- finally found a right for gay marriage. All of those things, the court, the, the conservative justices were saying, oh, no, we're not talking about those things. Those are real precedent. But, of course, these are the same justices who, at their confirmation hearings, each and every one of them said, no, Roe is binding precedent, Roe is good law, you know, Roe Roe is the law of the land. And so I think it raises this question of if you can willy-nilly decide that Roe is no longer binding precedent and you can overturn it, why aren't all those other cases that are rooted, as you say, in that right to privacy, family autonomy, dignity, you know, liberty, all of those kind of bucket of 14th Amendment rights, Hmm. they too must be on the table. And I think it raises this question of where does this end? Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Dahlia Lithwick. She writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. We're talking about oral arguments yesterday in a pretty important abortion case out of Mississippi. Uh, Dahlia says that this could be the end of the Roe v. Wade precedent that has stood since 1973 as a protection of women's abortion rights. Uh, Dahlia, I want to talk just a little about what would happen in practical terms if the court did uh, effectively overturn Roe. We would go back to a world where states had much more say over, uh, over abortion rights. But what would that look like? in the different states uh, in the union? Well, I I think one place to start is just recognizing that in some sense, even without the court doing anything, we're already creeping into that realm, right? States like Mississippi, that is at issue here, only has one clinic left. There Mm -hmm. are several states that only have one clinic left. Um, You know, the average American women in some of those states has to drive hours and hours even to get to the one clinic. So sort of by hook and by crook, we're already getting there. But you're quite right. If the court were to say, as Brett Kavanaugh was positing, we're not going to say the Constitution bans abortion. We're not going to say it permits abortion. We're going to let the states decide. Then that's exactly right. We revert to the, the pre-Roe world in which states like California and New York and increasingly you know, Virginia and other purple states will have more and more abortion uh, uh, access. And, you know, states, particularly states, I have to say, with the worst maternal and infant um, mortality rates Mm -hmm. and and, uh, health rates are going to just have all their clinics shuttered. So I think maybe the best answer is what we have seen in Texas since SB8. That was the bill that went into effect uh, on the first day of September, where after six weeks, nobody can procure abortion. And that is still the law in Texas. That's what you're going to see around the country, where the very luckiest, wealthiest pregnant people will be able to go to Oklahoma and maybe get uh, an abortion out of state. But that huge numbers of people will either be attempting self-abortions, they will be going to Mexico and trying to procure uh, drugs, uh, or they'll be carrying to term against their will. And I think what you're going to really see is a reversion to a country in which, you know, wealthy women, Justice Ginsburg would always say, will always be able to get an abortion. (laughs) Uh, But the women who most desperately need them, women of color, uh, poor people who can't travel, uh, immigrants who can't necessarily um, freely cross state lines, they're going to lose all access. And I think that's probably where, as I said, even absent this decision, some of the states are headed. I think we will hurdle to that. There are 22 states (laughs) that will make it immediately impossible to get an abortion. And indeed here in Michigan, we even have one of the most restrictive anti-abortion laws on the books. And if Roe were to go away, that would uh, that would be the law here uh, as well. I, before we have to end, I want to ask you about the potential reaction to this. The, the court counts on public confidence to maintain its authority as an institution. Does that confidence get eroded if a precedent this big gets overturned. You know, that is without a doubt the sort of meta conversation around this case. Uh, When the court heard Casey in 1992 and reaffirmed Roe, the thing they decided, and this was an improbable three Republican appointees, Justice Kennedy, Souter, and O'Connor, decided to save Roe 
largely because they said we cannot just reverse precedent because of politics. We cannot say the composition of the court drives how we, you know, do law. And the, all of Casey was a long meditation on the legitimacy of the court. The court decided to save Roe. So I think all of those questions are resurfaced. We've now got the court polling lower than it has ever polled, you know, in the in the 40s. Um, then, and, and I think that there's a great anxiety that the justices feel that public confidence has really eroded in the court. And so you're completely right. All three of Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor yesterday raised the specter of how can we possibly say the court uh, is legitimate if the only reason we upheld abortion in 2020 in the June medical case and strike it down uh, in 2022 mm. uh, is because Amy Coney Barrett replaced uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We can't do that. Justice um, Sotomayor described it as the stench of, uh, you know, the, the court as a political institution. And I think those are the issues that the justices are going to be thinking about really hard is how far can they push public confidence that the court is a neutral, apolitical uh, institution in a moment where public confidence is already pretty dubious about that. Mm. Okay. Dahlia Lithwick, uh, who writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. It's always really great to have you here to unpack what happens at the court for us. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And my heart really goes out to all the folks uh, in Michigan who are suffering right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk about schools here in Metro Detroit that are doing a much better job than others with students of color and low-income students. We're going to hear from an administrator for one of those schools and an education advocate about what they're doing right.